The Italian Wine Podcast is the community-driven platform for Italian wine geeks around the world. Support the show by donating at italianwinepodcast.com. Donate five or more euros and we'll send you a copy of our latest book, My Italian Grape Geek Journal, absolutely free. To get your free copy of My Italian Grape Geek Journal, click support us at italianwinepodcast.com or wherever you get your pods. Grazie mille. Welcome to the Italian Wine Podcast. I'm Cynthia Chaplin, and this is Voices. Every Wednesday, I will be sharing conversations with international wine industry professionals, discussing issues in diversity, equity, and inclusion through their personal experiences working in the field of wine. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate our show wherever you get your pods. Hello, and welcome to Voices. This is Cynthia Chaplin, and today it's my huge pleasure to welcome Christy Norman to the show. Christy is a certified sommelier with the Court of Master Sommeliers in the U.S., and she's received several awards for her work in the wine sector, including Wine Educator of the Year and being named one of the 40 Under 40 Tastemakers by Wine Enthusiast in 2020. She's currently the lead sommelier at The Win in Las Vegas since 2021, and she's been running her own successful business with some online wine courses since 2018. So thank you for giving us some time. I know your time's not cheap, Christy. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Cynthia. I really appreciate it. No, it's a huge pleasure. We've been trying to get this one off the ground for a while, so I'm, I'm really happy that we can have a chat. Your story is, is such a cool one. Uh, you got into the wine world at a really young age. So tell me what happened. Where did you grow up? How did you discover wine? You know, how did you decide wine was the world for you? Um, well, it was kind of an accident. So I was born in Japan, and there's a lot of ceremony around tea um, and tea houses. And I started working at a tea house in the U.S. when I was 15. Um, I, I moved from Japan when I was about six and a half, um, started grade school in the U.S. in Northern California. And I started working at a tea house. And I, you know, my first job ever was recommending teas. And there was probably 120 teas on the selection list. And so my job was to recommend teas to customers based on aromas, you know, different levels of caffeine, different varieties, different countries of origin and whatnot. So my mom always jokes that I was destined to become a sommelier. <laughs> um, and I wanted to work at the one fancy steakhouse. I was working in a, a, a very, very small town in Southern California. It's kind of a suburb. There's only one really big theme park. And there was one very fancy steakhouse, and I really wanted to work there. And I heard the general manager liked wine. So I was 18 at the time. Um, I had been working at a, a barbecue joint called Lucille's Barbecue. It's kind of like a, a big chain restaurant, very corporate, you know, very casual. And, you know, I wanted to make the jump. And so I started learning about wine when I was 18. And the barriers to entry were really, really high. Um, I had to read a lot. I was reading every book that I could find. And I had myself on a schedule of reading, you know, 50 pages a day. And it was really grueling. But because of my wine knowledge, it really impressed the general manager, who was an introductory sommelier. And uh, they hired me as a bar apprentice, like a bar back, you know, cutting the fruit garnishes, juicing, doing, you know, mopping the floors. I think sort of we thing. all started there. Yeah. And um, I was promoted to food runner, head expediter of the steakhouse and then server a little bit after that. But they still had me working kind of like dual shifts as a food runner and as a server. And I was taking, you know, I, I basically said to them, if I take my level one sommelier, will you make me a server full time? And they said, yes. Um, and 
I passed just a couple days after my 21st birthday. And then I was opening a restaurant for them. I was uh, supporting them as a manager in a different town. You know, it was about an hour away drive from my home. And, uh, you know, I was taking my certified exam the same week. And if you've ever opened a restaurant, you know how stressful it can be to have something coincide in the exact same week of opening was was really stressful. I almost didn't want to do it. I almost I almost rescheduled. Um, But someone uh, named Sean Privat walked into the restaurant soft opening. And he actually didn't have an invitation. He just lived in the neighborhood. He knew a lot of the executives and, you know, management. And so he just walked in and I was introduced to him. And he really supported me in in taking the certified exam. Um, And I wouldn't have passed without him. Um, He's wonderful. He brought me to my first tasting group, which I didn't know at the time was the top sommeliers in Los Angeles. Uh, it was it was the all of the advanced sommeliers taking master, you know, everyone that was about to take their advanced. And they just looked at me like, who is this girl? And she's, you know, barely certified. And she's in this really advanced tasting group. And, um, you know, Paul Sherman was the person that that ran that tasting group. He's an educator. He was at Valentino's um, in Santa Monica for a very long time. And he also is an educator for UCLA for wine. And, you know, he was kind of, I mean, we had tasting group every single week. And um, I applied at Spago Beverly Hills because I heard that they had one of the biggest wine programs in the country. And I said I had to work there. And I kind of recognized this man, Wolfgang. Um, I, I thought I saw him at the grocery store, maybe on a can of peas. I didn't really know who he was. I had never heard of Spago before, but, you know, I figured that's where I should work. And so I applied there for several months for different positions. And then they hired me as a, as a sommelier at Spago. <laughs> At 21. <laughs> well, I, I've got to ask the question. I mean, it's kind of the, the white elephant in the room, but, you know, 21 is the legal drinking age in the USA because a lot of our, our listeners are not in the US. So how were you tasting and prepping for all these exams when, in theory, you couldn't walk in and buy your own wine? Well, most of studying wine is actually with it's not with tasting. I mean, I didn't need to taste to understand, you know, different regions in a country. I feel like wine is learning a language. The tasting aspect for me only became important after I turned 21 and started going to tasting group. But most of the fundamental, you know, knowledge portions um, were all a book knowledge, you know, and I think, I think that's what makes me a little bit different, because I really started out with just the theory. Years. No, I I think that's so interesting. I really do because I I agree with you, and I I teach as well, and I have had a couple of students in the past who did not drink for for religious reasons, and they just wanted to know about wine, and they were able to do and pass an entire you know college level course on introduction to Italian wine without tasting any wine. So I I just think it's really intriguing when, you know, people set off to do it that way. Like a dry wine course is not something that sounds all that appealing, but uh, basically that's what you were doing. So it's just, it's a very interesting approach to how to get into the wine business um, before you were legally allowed to drink any wine. I love the story behind it. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's kind of unique. um, And a lot of people are surprised, you know, I feel like most sommeliers that I know started when they were in their 20s, late 20s or 30s. And I just started a lot earlier. <laughs> so, And I also didn't really drink. Um, actually, when I got hired at Spago, I was about to do um, a bodybuilding competition, like a bikini competition. Um, I don't know if you have them where you are, but um, no, but I, I think we all know what they are. <laughs> 
Yeah, there's there's spray tans and, you know, you have all these different poses in this routine. And it's kind of like a pageant show, but for bodybuilding. And I was about five weeks into my first ever uh, cut. So I, I didn't think that I was going to get hired at Spago. And I said, okay, well, if I'm if I'm just waiting, you know, for Spago, I'll just do this bikini competition. It's like 16 to 20 weeks usually to to cut for a show. And uh, and then, of course, four weeks in, Spago uh, called me. And so I had to spit everything. And my coach had me basically input three ounces of wine into my food log every day. So I had to basically eat less <laughs> so that I could uh, taste the wine because it does absorb, you know, of under course, tongue, of course. Capillaries, you know? And it's just hysterical because my first taste of Champagne Salon uh, was 1996. And uh, my boss told me that if I spit, he would fire me. Oh, my <laughs> God. But I, I held it in my mouth. And then when he walked away, I ran outside into the bushes and I spit it out. And oh, <laughs> just that's kind of tragic, <laughs> kind of tragic, I have to say. But it's it's just a very, very interesting take on how to get into the wine world and, and you know, to do it really successfully. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you were also you were so young you know, doing this. And being a young woman in the wine industry is not a barrel of laughs. It's not always that easy, especially when you're at the beginning. You know, what kind of obstacles and bumps in the road did you experience along the way? Uh, you said, you know, you walked into the tasting group and people said, who is this girl? But what kind of, what was the path like for you as you kind of grew into your career? Yeah, um, well, there's there's two things that I can think of really clearly. So uh, I started doing tasting group at uh, Spago. Um, they allowed me to host master classes and you know tasting group, which is essentially when wine professionals go, they sit around a table and they have a, a flight of wines that are pre poured, so you don't know what they are, but your job is to identify what the wines are, and it's supposed to kind of um, kind of like going to the gym, right? You're you're training your muscles, you're training your nose uh, to be able to pick up certain flavor characteristics to be able to determine what the wine is, because it is an important skill for sommeliers. One of the things that I said was that in order to be part of my group, you had to be on time and be your word. And in Los Angeles, that was very controversial. People were very upset at the beginning that this young woman, I think it was mostly because I was young, maybe a little bit less because I was a woman, but for this person to say to, you know, uh, professionals who are, you know, very, um, you know, they've been in the industry a long time to tell them that, you know, they need to be on time was, was very, very upsetting for some people. <laughs> Um, but the whole point was I was bringing uh, master sommeliers, masters of wine, uh, really, really high level wine professionals to be mentors. And I wanted to respect their time. And so we would have, you know, 12 to 15 sommeliers with this mentor every tasting group day. And we did it about twice a month, maybe one tasting group and then one master class where I would bring, you know, somewhat, someone very important in the wine industry, let's say, a, a, let's say an Opus One Masterclass or, you know, a, a Ken Wright Masterclass from Willamette, doing a Willamette Masterclass, let's say. And it was, it was really fantastic. And actually, because uh, there were some people that I called forth for being tardy, you know, multiple times or no call, no shows, I would actually, there was only one person or, or maybe two people in, in three or four years that 
I actually asked to take a break because they no call no showed to several classes and I had a big wait list. And so we were, we had classes with 60 to 70 wine professionals and a 20 person waiting list outside of that. Wow. So if you didn't tell me you weren't showing up, that was really upsetting because there was somebody on the wait list that could have had it. And this isn't, you know, just some free event. And I wasn't being paid for it at the time either. I was doing this because I loved it and I thought it was fun. Uh, and I wanted to create these opportunities. So it was really frustrating when I would send six reminder emails over the course of a week and someone doesn't think to decline. Right. Yeah. Um, but ironically, that was why I see as well. Absolutely. Um, but ironically, that is why so many people were attracted to my group because I was keeping time and I was respecting uh, everyone. And uh, after a year or so, I mean, we started with seven people. And then now the Los Angeles Psalm community has about 350 sommeliers from uh, Santa Barbara to San Diego. Uh, so a lot, a lot of people <laughs> for sure. And, uh, and, and also I was very welcoming to distributors who wanted to learn because usually distributors aren't allowed you know, people who are selling wine to restaurants usually aren't allowed in the tasting groups. They're excluded from those types of things. Actually, they were the ones that invited all of these other people from these other restaurants. So I had the wine directors of all these really great restaurants and I didn't know them originally. It was the distributors actually inviting them, which was really wonderful. Um, and then the other thing was, you know, I started my Instagram, I think when I was 22. I was, you know, just being myself and doing social media from a millennial perspective. And there were a lot of people that did not like it. And I remember there were Facebook groups uh, that are still going, I think, uh, online. And they would post pictures of young women that looked like me or, you know, somebody uh, they would actually post actual pictures of me or they would take screenshots of my Instagram stories uh, when that became a thing. And uh, people would just bash me for, you know, a hundred comments, um, just people making fun of me or whatever. And, you know, I think there was uh, this kind of like mean thing. I don't know. Young women in the wine industry really upset some people, especially. And they continue to do so in some places. Totally, totally. And it was so interesting because there were so many people I met that that didn't like it, but they saw it. Right. And and it, it's not that a lot of people brought it to me. It didn't really matter, but it was just the fact that it was happening. And it was especially to young women in the wine industry. And it, I think it kind of started out as making fun of women who are, you know, promoting false information. Uh, so they would first, you know, if somebody said something completely inaccurate, they would take a screen grab of it and then post it and make fun of them. But then it kind of turned into like even uh, anyone who was a young woman, they would make fun of them for whatever, or like slut shame them for what they were wearing or what they were doing or whatever. And I think there's room for lots of different people in the wine industry. And, you know, I didn't dim my light. I still continue to do what, what I'm going to do. But I could see how somebody doing something different in the wine industry was not really allowed back then. <laughs> no, for sure. For sure. Seven years ago now, but just so a young woman doing something different was, uh, drew a lot of attention and, uh, not in, in the, in a positive way, a lot of the time. No, exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you had, you know, such strong mentors to lean on during that, because I think not, not everyone does. And I think a lot of young women, certainly i faced similar sorts of things when I started out, uh, which was quite a while back. <laughs> but it, I think this is part of why I love hosting this podcast, you know, women supporting women and getting the message out there that these things do happen and, and they are upsetting and they're disappointing, uh, but it's not going to stop us. So I think 
I, I think that what you did with it is great, you know, carrying on, not dimming your light, as you said. And that's, it's a good role model for other young women coming into the industry, which, you know, is changing, thank goodness, and being more inclusive and, and more aware of, you know, people's bad behavior. And I think that's, that's fantastic. So let's talk about your success because you are hugely successful, I'm happy to say. You know, right now you're the lead SOM at The Win in Las Vegas. So tell us what that's like. You know, what's an ordinary day for Christy at The Win like? I feel like there's never an ordinary day, you know? <laughs> Which is what makes our wine jobs fun, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. It's always really, really fun. Well, most of my job is really being an accountant in a way, right? Uh, I'm I'm managing inventory. <laughs> and because I worked at Spago, which had a seller that was huge, I mean, we had between 20,000 and 30,000 bottles at any given time. I really knew how to set up um, the restaurant that I run really, really immaculately and uh, so that we can pull things really quickly. So that's my number one goal is managing all of the wines that were out of stock. So on any given week, any seven day period, we're removing 20 to 30 SKUs that are non-reorderable. So that means fine and rare. I mean, we're running through our inventory so quickly at such a high rate, we're actually reprinting the wine list every Friday. And so managing those 86s, you know, chasing down deliveries. Did it get delivered? Did the warehouse, you know, have it somewhere else? Uh, did they deliver it to a, a neighboring restaurant? Um, you know, maybe we're tasting wines as a team, deciding, um, you know, by the glass placements for um, the casual venues, let's say, uh, together, you know, discussing what the, the value of a wine is. Um, what else do we do? Just a lot of putting away wine. And then, of course, you know, working service and, and supporting guests and whatnot. Uh, my team is fantastic. We have five sommeliers. And, you know, we're, we're always uh, competing and selling uh, challenge bottles. So every day, our team has a, a few different challenge bottles and different price points of just fun things that we haven't sold in a while that maybe we forgot that it's on the wine list or something that's a focus for us in some way. And it also encourages us to learn quite a bit. Um, but I would say most of my job is pretty boring with administration and, um, you know, tracking down wine with the supply chain. You know, a, about a year and a half ago, the supply chain you know, obviously was affected everywhere. But especially uh, for us in Las Vegas here, my personal perspective, um, seeing that 50% of our PO was actually being filled. So 50% of what the hotel would order would actually arrive uh, because there was such limited wine and everyone from different casinos. I mean, this is only a 10, you know, 10 mile square city. It's very, very small. And you have a lot of casinos and businesses trying to get the same product. So it was it was very scary at the <laughs> a year and a half ago, just because every time we would order something, it wouldn't arrive. But it's it's definitely stabilized quite a bit. Um, you know, some of the distributors have consolidated to have different distribution days and not like a daily situation. Yeah, that's pretty much my life. I did a tasting for an influencer the other day. Um, you know, I got to host this uh, a lovely woman and her film crew. And we did a tasting in half bottles. Um, you know, I decanted for them and kind of talked them through different wines. So that's kind of a fun thing that I get to do every once in a while. <laughs> well, you you are a wine educator at heart, too. You know, I know you, you started up your own brand of kind of online wine courses. And I, I love the goal that you that you talk about, you know, being 
able to make wine more accessible and more fun, which is something that I am totally on board with. And your courses have won you some awards uh, and some fame. So let's hear about what you're doing there, because I, I'm an educator too, so I know it is really fun to, to be able to present wines and teach wine and, and watch people sort of the light bulb come on and, and the excitement you know that wine can bring start happening with people who are new to it. So what are you teaching and, and how are you teaching and who are your students? You know, is everybody still online or do you do anything in person? Everything is online right now. So I created the online wine course in actually 2019. I think I started in 2018, but we fully launched in 2019. And the purpose was to make a driver's ed course like program for wine. So it's funny you said that, you know, how could you present a wine course without wine? Mine does. Wine is not required in my course. And it actually has a 16 different sections, you know, starting with, you know, what is wine? It takes somebody that doesn't know the difference between white and red, because, you know, when you talk to consumers, it's, it's actually insane that a lot of people believe that they put fruit in the wine and that's what creates the aromas. Like they don't understand, right? The, that different varieties have different Absolutely. aromas. And like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the purpose of my course is, you know, the, the beginning, it's like, what is wine? How is it made? Different varieties, like an introduction. And then the second half goes into different countries and the important regions there. And again, it's very, very introductory, but uh, it, you know, there's a, a comprehensive exam at the end and you get a little certificate and a pin. So there's something that you're working for. I think that's important. Um, and lots of restaurants are using it as training for their staff. It's so wonderful, you know, to go to a restaurant and the, you know, the waiter knows immediately who you are because they had to watch three hours of video of you. <laughs> and uh, and it's, it's really fun and it is challenging for someone who doesn't know anything about wine. And, you know, I had, you know, about 250 sommeliers take the course to kind of prove its legitimacy to, 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 to show that, you know, this could actually be done. I hadn't ever seen anything like it. And truly, I actually have psoriasis, which is um, a skin condition. It actually covers 70% of my body when I'm not uh, medicated. But my medication comes with a really high cost, which is it uh, lowers my immune system. And so teaching uh, in person for many hours makes me really, really tired. And I knew that that wasn't an avenue that I could do. So I created this course um, with others on the way um, because I wanted to be able to kind of preserve like that, the top uh, lesson and like the top energy that I possibly could. And I wanted to kind of like encapsulate that and have that available. But it's it's really fun. You know, I went to um, 11 Madison Park for dinner uh, last October and the food runner that dropped off my food um, said that she took my online wine course and that's why she works there. And I just started crying and she started crying at the bar and everyone was looking at us. And it was just like a really magical moment because, you know, as I, I don't really go out very often, right, to different cities, maybe it's, you know, a couple times a year. I like to stay in Las Vegas. I really took this job at the win uh, to legitimize myself and my career, at least in my own eyes. Maybe it was already legitimate before, but I really wanted experience running a program because I had only been a sommelier for a few years. And I think it's really important that someone actually has a real wine job. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. It makes complete sense. I think a lot of people get into the wine industry sort of in a, in a hobby start, you know, sort of a passion, a hobby. And either don't realize they can make it into a career or they can't figure out how to do it 
And there's always that imposter syndrome of, you know, I know about this, but everybody else in the room is more experienced or has had more jobs than me. And yeah, I think I think that's a big thing in the wine industry. Well, I wanted to be able to have financial conversations about wine in a way that was articulate. And I knew that there was a difference between me and other people. And really what I didn't understand was the supplier distributor relationships. We obviously have the three tiered system in the US, which is a, you know very uh, archaic. A goal of mine could be to change that one day. Um, that would be like a big, big dream of mine to um, lobby with uh, lawmakers to, to, to make some amendments. I think you would get a gigantic award from the wine industry <laughs> if you did that. Or I would get whacked by a distributor. Very a distributor. likely also, especially in Las Vegas. People disappear out into the desert. We'll never see you again. <laughs> yeah, so it's not something that I'm pursuing right now, just for the record. But <laughs> um, but I, I think it's it's very important. And during the pandemic, I offered my wine course for free for all hospitality professionals that were out of work. And I only put it in six or seven Facebook groups. And I just got thousands and thousands of emails like in a couple of days. It was absolutely overwhelming. But, you know, I figured it out. And um, it's been very rewarding uh, to be able to have my wine course available for people to use. And uh, basically, if you buy the lifetime course, it's it's $300, then you get access to all the videos after you pass the final exam. And then I have like a lower priced course, which is $150 US. And basically, it locks you out after but you will still have access to all of your PDF files and stuff like that. And, and to be honest, I wish that I could give my course for free. However, I noticed that at the pricing that it is now, there's the highest rate of completion. Yeah, I think people, people people value how they spend their money and they take it Absolutely. take it more seriously. I think, you know, anybody who does any kind of selling anywhere in the world understands that having a, a higher price is often, you know, linked directly to more sales, bizarrely, but it is true. Consumers do think they're getting more value if they have to pay more. I really want them to to pass. I I really don't care that they oh, Chris, buy you it. Cut out. Like, you cut out for a second there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said, I don't care if they buy it. I don't care if they buy it at all. You know, I, I have a career and, you know, I have uh, a job and my wine course, um, you know, it just, it, it helps pay for itself and also expanding to new things. But if all wine course sales ceased for the next year, it wouldn't be an issue. You know, um, my my purpose of doing it is because I want people to, to finish. And my audience uh, are... Uh, servers, let's say, that want to make more money at work. Because I think people who are servers, if you learn about wine and upselling and, you know, even if it was just one glass of dessert wine, you know, a night, how much, you know, extra money would you accumulate by the end of the year, right? It, it's actually a lot. It's giving yourself a pay raise. So that's one type of person. Another type of person is the professional. You know, sometimes I Google uh, people who buy my course. I want to see, I can see the city and I can, ha I have your first and last name if it's unique. Um, and, you know, a lot of times they're like accountants or president of a company, you know, a lawyer, you know, some of these careers that are uh, kind of lifelong learning, uh, you know, where people are kind of used to absorbing a lot of information. Um, I see a lot of professionals uh, doing that. And then also, you know, people who want to 
kind of like just bolster, like they're a hobbyist, right? I think it's fun to kind of get some sort of structural education without a certification program, like a real certification program. I understand my course is a very, very basic level, but I think that it brings you up to speed. I think you could pass many wine uh, exams, like introductory level after taking my course. I truly think that it's not something that I'm guaranteeing to anybody, but I think it's a bridge and it was the bridge that I would have really appreciated. I wish that there was something online, you know, um, no offense uh, to some other classes, but some people I just don't identify with. I don't identify with their style of teaching in this very like fancy, everything has to be very bougie type of way. That's not how I feel about it. And I wish that somebody just laid out the different grapes and styles and what things mean and, you know, what does oak mean? Right? Oh, I completely agree. It's, it, it is, you know, wine can be, you know, sort of intimidating enough without adding language and atmosphere and, you know, tradition and history and expectations and standards and all these things that we don't need to get people involved. So yeah, I, I am completely on board with that. And I think there was definitely nothing like that around when I started. So I'm sure that you are helping more people than you'll ever know. But listen, on a different topic, I know you're also the president and co-founder of the United Sommeliers Foundation. So what's the mission of the foundation? What, what was your sort of thought process when you started it? What role are you filling there now? Um, well, um, March 15th, uh, or I'm sorry, March 16th, I believe in 2020, I was scheduled to do a masterclass with uh, Master Sommelier Chris Blanchard. So he works with Opus One now, but we were going to do uh, a big, big seminar. So he had wines shipped to, to Spago. We were so excited. And of course, restaurants were shut down on March 15th. And so we had, you know, 40 or 50 sommeliers that I had to cancel the class and obviously it was really devastating. And I had been doing all of these events for the Psalm community and just very closely tied with everyone. And, you know, Chris said, you know, he texted me uh, later, even though he was in Napa and he said, Christy, we have to do something. Like, what do you want to do? Like, we have to, to, to help in some way. And so I called uh, some really high level wine people all over the country. I kind of tried to get a mix uh, from different areas. Um, you know, master sommeliers, masters of wine, you know, just very respected, you know, well-liked professionals. Um, and we got together and created um, the United Sommeliers Foundation. And actually, it just started as a GoFundMe. So at the beginning, we, I, you know, I didn't, I personally didn't want to create a charity. There wasn't, um, it, it wasn't the intention, truly. I was actually on record, the only person that voted against creating a charity. Um, I thought it was stupid and I thought we could do it just grassroots and unofficially. But, you know, Jeff Levitska, who's a, a master of wine, um, he's still on the board now. Uh, he was very adamant that, you know, we could get larger scale donations from corporations. And he was correct. You know, <laughs> we had 100,000 from Cobrand and then, you know, 50,000 from the Cork Council Society, 50,000 from Skernick. Like it just started rolling in. And um, so we've raised over 1.5 million. We've given out uh, 1.35 million. But what's kind of different about our organization is that all applications are anonymized uh, when they get in. We realize the industry is really, really small. So we have one employee. She's the only person who's paid in our organization. Um, her name is Arden. And uh, she anonymizes all of the applications, which would remove any idea of what restaurant they're at or you know, who they could be, anything that's identifiable to the person so that we don't know. And we have a couple different grant programs. So the first one is $500. That's a check mailed directly to them or zelled, you know, in a disaster situation, um, we will zell um, 
funds out, you know, if somebody doesn't have a home to receive funds. Um, and then the other program is uh, the Grand Cru Award. Um, that's what we call it internally. Um, it's, you know, a, a larger dollar amount, but it's paid directly to their bills. So let's say they don't have health insurance. They work at a Michelin star restaurant. They're a sommelier, but they don't work enough to get insurance. <laughs> Maybe they just, they're right underneath the hours threshold that they need. And they have a, a medical situation happen and they need support. You know, we will pay the hospital bill directly. Um, we will pay people's mortgage or rent or health insurance payment or car payment, you know, all the things that enable people to work. I think that's, you know, you need a roof over your head. You need to be healthy and well. You need to be able to get yourself to work. All of these things allow people to keep their job. I, it's such an important thing that you're doing. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it was it was very challenging because no one had ever done this in the industry before. And so we wanted to make sure that, um, you know, we do it in the highest integrity and just you know, most charities, uh, you know, big charities, if they spend uh, less than 30% of what they make, then they're considered good, which is crazy to me because we spend less than 1% of what we, we get in right at this moment, you know, on October 5th, 2023, we do not spend any money. I mean, all of it really goes out to the people that are in need. Um, and that's been really wonderful. And we do a, an annual auction that's coming up. Actually, the deadline uh, for the submissions this year closes tomorrow. So I have about 700 emails in my inbox waiting for me. Terrifying, terrifying. Yeah, but you know what? This is my you know third go around with uh, a, an auction. It's through Zaki's, the auction house in New York. Um, they're really wonderful. And you know we raise a lot of money. And I think um, what's really great is that we get a lot of different suppliers involved. And everyone helps out a little bit, right? Um, it's not like we need to get, um, you know, a million dollars donated every year. Uh, the sommelier industry is pretty small, but we have been able, I think, to make a, a great impact. We've supported over, you know, 1,300 sommeliers over uh, in the U.S. You know, it's it's very meaningful. Of course, it's very heartbreaking. But every time there is a disaster, let's say the the fires on Maui, for instance, we, you know, we were able to get the word out about our application like very quickly. And, you know, we saw that other islands were being affected as well. It wasn't just Maui uh, after a short period of time, you know, because everyone was kind of canceling their uh, trips to Hawaii. Of course. So it was just decimating the industry. And I think, you know, if our mission is to support and strengthen the sommelier community through resources and financial aid, financial part is great. But then also we want to support them in financial literacy. So we've been starting, um, you know, different workshops, you know, learning about different aspects, you know, career mapping. Um, wh what is it like working for a supplier or distributor? Like these are things that, um, you know, we're doing kind of in our monthly webinar series. Um, so that we get a holistic uh, education. We look at sommeliers as people instead of um, education robots. You know, it's it was amazing because during the pandemic, you could still apply for a trip to go to Spain, but there was no other organization that was supporting with financial aid as far as that I saw. Maybe there were, were others that were helping, but I had personally, as a sommelier, I was a line worker, you know, at Spago. I applied for every single restaurant financial aid uh, grant program in the country, and I didn't get a single one. 
Um, but if I had applied to, I obviously I can't apply because I'm the president of the board. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if I had applied, I would have gotten funding, you know, within days. Yeah, you know, and maybe that would have been the difference for somebody. You know, I when I moved to Las Vegas, um, I went to a charity event uh, for a different organization, and I was just at dinner, and I met uh, this this woman, and she said. Yeah, you know, um, do you see that car outside? She she said that she knew who I was, and and she said, "Do you see the car outside there? You know, it didn't get repossessed because of what you did." Yeah, and I just started crying. <laughs> no, it's amazing because it, it, as I said, it enables people to go to work and keep their job. And I think a lot of people, you know, especially in the early stages of a career in wine, uh, give up because they can't earn enough to support themselves, or they have, you know, as you said, a, a disaster or an illness or an injury. And, um, it's hard because, again, it keeps people out of the industry who, you know, desperately want to be involved. So it's it's great what you're doing. And, you know, I thank you on behalf of all the people you've helped, but also just for our industry, because it's good to see positive things here. So before we go, I'm just going to ask you, you know, you said you dropped yourself in this because you said you're a millennial. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about a new generation of wine consumers. You know, we know there's a lot of hard data out there now saying Gen Z are drinking less wine and drinking less alcohol overall. What do you think the wine industry should do in response to this? I mean, do you see this sort of playing in the places that you inhabit in wine yeah, absolutely. I mean, I lived in Los Angeles and um, Los Angeles is kind of the natural wine capital of the country. And uh, I do think that there are some excellent natural wines. It's nothing uh, about specific wines necessarily, but I do think that a lot of people are attracted uh, to natural wine because there's less barriers to entry, right? You can just enjoy the wine. You know, you kind of identify with a particular group almost. It's like, oh, well, I only drink natural wines, right? And and actually, I think a lot of the education is actually missing about, you know, the history of wine and different uh, major regions that have been important for the world, you know, not, uh, not necessarily for, um, you know, individuals. I think that you know, people need to actually learn about wine. And that's why kind of Gen Z is, I think, drinking less wine, because, you know, we're realizing that alcohol is not very good for you. But then too, you know, there's just like a lack of wine education that's accessible, to be honest. And I think that if there was more um, things that were fun, I think we're kind of starting to see that where influencers are that are wine professionals are starting to really teach. Um, but I think the problem is, you know, Nobody feels qualified to teach. I don't feel qualified to teach. And I have a wine course that's been taken by thousands of people, you know, um, because you don't know the most and there might be an exception. And I think people have to know enough to know that there are exceptions, but be OK with teaching and be OK with being wrong. And I think that if we all did that, um, we would be able to make a big impact and actually get people interested in, in wine and and also, you know, using uh, social media to engage. You know, I I am very interested in like certain quilting patterns, but it's only because some creator on the internet made it accessible for me to look at and learn about, you know? And I think that wine people should do the same and just don't be afraid to share, you know? Um, 
I always say that the wine industry is about five years behind everybody else. Oh, in Italy, it's 10 years behind. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, like, we're just five years behind any other industry. So I think it's going to start happening soon where a lot of really great wine um, social media content is really going to start. And I'm hoping that that will start peaking the interest of Gen Z as a whole. But I think, um, you know, we also need to start having the conversations about sustainability and the environment. Gen Z really cares about that a lot. And also, you know, ethical labor and farming practices. You know, I had a Gen Z person in one of my seminars, you know, ask basically, hey, you know, where are you getting your labor from? Asking a a Bordeaux house, who are the, the people that make up your labor force and where do they come from? Do you employ them all year round? Jarring questions. Oh, undoubtedly. Yes. I mean, I don't think they'll ever come back to Los Angeles, to be honest, but this is real. This was in front of a big group of people. And I think more people are starting to care about those things. So I think, um, you know, being transparent, being um, open and um, and being honest about, you know, what all of the different aspects of making the wine. So that was a really long winded answer. But <laughs> no, it's a good answer, though. And, and I think you know, you've put your finger on on quite a few things, you know, the ethics side of things, the sustainability side, um, social media, and the obvious tool that that could be in the right hands, and natural wines. And I like the fact that you said we need more education about natural wine and, you know, unusual, um, but historic wine regions, you know, Georgia and places like this that have never been traditionally in, you know, the wine education books, but but really should be. So, you know, at making it fun, making it pertinent and relevant, and also getting producers to understand that they have to be ethical, they have to be demonstrably sustainable, you know, these things are going to be important for the future, and they need to start now. So that's, I, I think it was a good answer. I, I like it. I like it. So I, I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Christy. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This was so much fun. Well, hopefully I will get to see you one of these days. I think you should come to Verona and take the Vini Italy International Italian Wine Ambassador course. I think you would be great. And I know you are such a learner. You would love it. But until that time, I wish you well in everything you're doing. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening, and remember to tune in next Wednesday when I'll be chatting with another fascinating guest. Italian Wine Podcast is among the leading wine podcasts in the world and the only one with a daily show. Tune in every day and discover all our different shows. You can find us at italianwinepodcast.com, SoundCloud, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your pods.